0: Hi everyone, Duncan Fletcher here, PADS Executive Director. I'm back along for another PADS podcast with my colleague, Stephanie Thorburn. Stephanie, how are you doing today?
1: the morning, Duncan.
0: Oh, well, is it the morning? Let's just go here. It's high noon here. He goes to show you where Stephanie (sighs) is. You know, I just
1: wanted to just throw it out there, a different phrase, a little different energy for the group today.
0: There you go. There you go. Contextual. It doesn't matter what time it is. We're here for the knowledge. We're super fortunate today to have uh, a guest with us, Brian D. Avery. He's currently lecturer and the director of engaged learning and outreach for the University of Florida Department of Sport Management. Brian, thank you so much for being with us today.
2: Uh, it's a pleasure duncan and stephanie i'm looking forward to uh, exploring risk as it relates to athletes and athlete development
0: yeah this is going to be a unique one brian we were kind of just talking about this before we hit the record button we're kind of taking a different perspective here on athlete development and looking at it through a different lens which i think is going to be hopefully educational and informative for our the professionals that are interested in the work that we do but i gotta ask you right out of the hop we're looking at your bio you were an amusement ride technician. I don't know if that's the right terminology when you were 14 years old. You guys, yeah, so, like, What's going on there? How long did
2: you do that? Wow. So as, as I would say, uh, when I'm speaking with my parents or anything in, in that realm, that I had cotton candy in my blood early on uh, in my career, right? My father had exposed me to the amusement industry at a very early age because he himself was in it uh, in a safety capacity. So less than a technician and more just an operational safety professional, Uh, I have evolved my thinking over time, and it seems to apply uh, and has been tested in courts and things of that nature in the classroom uh, in a multitude of aspects beyond just amusements, both in events, sport, recreation. Uh, So what I have learned through my experiences and exposures uh, to standards, to practices, to risk matrix, you name it, hazard analysis uh, and observations, uh, I have been able to apply to a multitude, like I said. Uh, of environments uh including amusement parks and or rides and devices absolutely
0: and i guess the question i have to ask is that you have gone down this road of safety risk mitigation and the whole nine yards it makes me pause for a minute to think that just perhaps some of those traveling amusement rides that are going around from city to city may not be the safest do
2: you have a comment on that brian am i putting you on the spot (laughs) no 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 uh i i have thoughts and theories if you would uh Primarily uh, when you're considering what are uh, known as carnival operators or mobile amusement providers, Uh, one school of thought is that each time that uh, you move to a new location, they are set up, examined, inspected, uh, and or meeting the manufacturer's specifications, and therefore uh, they should be a safer experience. Uh, Oftentimes, though, those that are conducting the inspection and or operating the equipment Uh, are not trained appropriately uh, to do so. Uh, The employment uh, factors, if you would, are thin uh, at best in that line of work. Uh, So finding qualified people that wanna travel at this point in day and age is difficult. Uh, And as a result, be cautious. Uh, That would be my word of advice uh, when you're attending or uh, at a carnival in any capacity. I tend to avoid them at this point and stick to the big three. Ah, uh, the Disney's, the Universals, and uh, the SeaWorlds uh, of the world.
0: Well, if that wasn't enough to make the mums and dads listen take pause, there you go. It's free advice here from Brian. Well, Teo, why don't we jump into the meat and potatoes of what we're looking to talk about today? And again, I think you know for the people that are listening, we're really trying to take a different perspective on how to look at the environments that our athletes are operating in. And, you know, with Brian's background in terms of from the operational perspective, the safety perspective of different athlete venues, um, stadiums and, and amusement parks and the whole nine yards, it's kind of interesting that the skill set that's required to address these issues kind of has a lot of crossover with our athlete development specialists. But one of the things I want to ask right away, and, you know, we were going through some of the different things that you were talking about in your, you know, both in your research and some of the stuff you're putting out for public consumption is this idea that there are no accidents and, you know, that as, as, as uh, most people are just like, well, an accident is an accident. It's a random occurrence, but you tend to disagree with that. Maybe I could just get you to talk about your, your theory and thoughts on, on what an accident is and, and is it an accident?
2: Yeah, no. So an accident, in, in my perspective and experience, is unforeseen, unplanned, uh, you know, obviously with some sort of consequence associated with event. I subscribe to a belief that most accidents are actually incidents, uh, and that they are caused, if you will. Accidents are are are, are usually uh, something that we don't foresee or understand. And I suggest often, especially in my lectures uh, and or writings, that it's just because people didn't have exposure to them. Uh, I get this uh, concept of freak accident that's thrown around when someone uh, is unfamiliar with how an incident or an accident has actually occurred. Uh, and it's not because it hasn't happened elsewhere. It's just because they weren't exposed or understanding uh, how it unfolded, if you will. So, yeah, I subscribe to a belief that most incidents are caused and occur as a result of a multitude of, of reasons uh, and a confluence of events. And, and I've termed it multi-causation. Uh, now, there's some discussion with respect to multi-causation, but essentially it's, it's multiple factors causing an outcome. Uh, now, I'm not suggesting that accidents don't just happen but I do believe for the most part they are foreseeable. It's just due to limitations in people's awareness, risk perceptions, financial constraints of an organization or time limiting factors, that accidents that could be prevented or not because of those limiting factors. So uh, my use of the word incidents is suggestive that we should be able to foresee the known uh, and or address it in a meaningful way through mitigating and eliminating factors. Uh, So an organization, the people, the coaches and athletes, administrators, you name it in this instance, if they were properly attuned, if you would, uh, to the readily available industry practices that include both regulations, consensus standards, or just if they were to apply a simple hazard analysis to evaluate risk, uh, they'd be able to identify those contributing factors and the confluence of events, if you would, and essentially eliminate it. Uh, you know, if you were able to remove one component from this multiple causing element, uh, you prevent, if you would, the incident from unfolding. So the key here is those that are in positions of authority, uh, those who are responsible for supervision of athletes, anything along that line should become familiar with just a process of assessing risk, developing a healthy risk perception, because I think that's a moving target for most, uh, it, you know, we have kind of moved the bar, if you will, with respect to risk perceptions. And this is a concern of mine because we have isolated and insulated children, if, if you think, through just their exposures to play uh, and on a playground. And we've made these environments more safe and uh, we've had impact attenuation materials and, you know, you no longer burn yourself on a slide. So we're not learning valuable lessons about risk early enough. So we move that bar later. Uh, And and unfortunately, we're missing some of the cues to develop risk perceptions early. So finding qualified people that could recognize risk and can intervene with respect to it's going to be key. And, And I don't know if everyone knows, but in the industry, recreation and sport, there are six primary duties to supervise and assessing risk is one of them. Effective planning, proper instructions, warnings, providing safe environments, evaluating physical and mental conditions of participants, uh, and essentially providing emergency care are all parts of that aspect. So you got to start with safety instructions. You got to teach the basics, obviously. But if you don't know, you better find someone who does so that they can assist, uh, or you're going to wind up uh, having hazards uh, that become risk and or uh, result in injuries if we don't.
1: And Brian, you actually answered my question that I was going to bring up um, as you started talking. And I was thinking... You know, what are those standard practices that can be in place for organizations? And I think you, you listed um, those six things. So would you say at a minimum uh, for athletic organizations for the you know, protection of their staff and, and their athletes having those kind of six in place?
2: Those are the key. And I always caution when we have these kinds of conversations that this is the baseline. The minimum that you should be practicing in your organizations, uh, it goes way deeper than that. And we're always learning and we need to be taking cues from others, engaging with others, understanding from others, reading materials that are presented and applying them uh, and complying with them in the organizations and the experiences that we provide. So, you know. When it comes to the sport industry, we obviously have quite a few regulations. There are best practices. There are standards that we've achieved through consensus. There are standards that are established through, through case law uh, and found in literature, and I would say both researched and applied. I know I use a lot of that content in my lectures. I use it in the cases that I bring uh, in the sense that where people have been injured as a result of negligence in sport, recreation, or entertainment functions. So The key is understanding that those standards and practices exist, and I think sometimes they don't in these organizations, and that is a serious misstep. So if you used the six primary duties of supervision as your baseline, it should be a jumping off point of going, what standards are there? I should be asking questions. What are your emergency response protocols? What are the best practices in this organization and others? And how do I apply them to my environment uh, so that I can have the best uh, environment possible Safety is, is, and having a a completely safe environment is a misnomer. We can make environments safer, but you're never going to have absolutes in safety. And I think that's something that uh, we strive for, and it sets us up for failure, uh, because it's impossible to achieve. Providing best practices, best steps forward, and constantly evaluating and and complying with what we do know that is known and foreseeable uh, will take us to the right place at the right time. But it might not. Be the answer that we're looking for to solve all of our problems.
1: And just again, uh, another follow up to what you're saying. I, I can think of two incidents, um, football games where a team has um, won an, an unbelievable game, and what happens? A lot of the students storm the field and they take down the goalpost. Um, and then another situation is in European. Um, Football. So we understand I'm not talking about American football or worldwide football soccer where um, fans storm the field and individuals are hurt. Either of those situations, things that could be put in place to prevent, uh, mitigate anyone getting hurt because you hear about these things happening and then people are, are hurt as a result.
2: Yeah, and I mean you can go back as far to the Hillsboro disaster, where pinning was uh, a concept that was being used, and obviously it ended in catastrophe uh, as a result of crowd management failures. Uh, the the crowds that are attracted to live entertainment and sport are massive, and as a result, we need to have qualified and competent people that are addressing crowd considerations and. I don't know if most realize that in NFPA life safety codes and beyond that, International Association of Venue Managers, I could go on. uh, There are codes for crowd management concerns, and there's baselines, if you will. For every 1,000 people that are in your care, you should have a minimum of one qualified crowd supervisor or manager on the premises. So for each additional 250 people, additional crowd managers, if you would. And they need to be trained in recognizing potential threats to the environment so that they can respond accordingly. I do think it's difficult in most environments where crowd rushing occurs in fields uh, to be preventive in the sense that when it starts to intervene uh to facilitate it safely because it's it's impossible uh because you get into trampling considerations and things like that. Beyond that though, I think there needs to be some more Punitive kind of responses or threats prior to to student bodies and or those that might be participating in those kind of uh, concerns because it's just a matter of time before someone dies as a result of it. We've seen that in situations like Black Friday at Walmart, uh, where crowd rushing has trampled people. We've seen that in Astro World in live entertainment, where eleven people died as a result of crowd concerns. We see that with the Hillsborough disaster, where a hundred people died or plus uh, in that environment. There's examples of this everywhere. What are we waiting for? Uh, and that is my primary concern: is that we know how to manage crowds, we know how to do so effectively. If we had proper protocols in place, we could address. But theoretically, all of those best laid efforts won't amount to a hill of beans if you don't have some sort of consequences. And that gets into what's called the three E's, which is that if we can't engineer the hazard out, if we can't educate people with respect to that hazard we need to enforce uh, in some capacity. And I don't see a lot of that. In $100,000, $250,000 fines, donors step up, pay them, move on, Uh, it was a win in the end. But I fear we're heading for a catastrophe if we continue. Uh, And it seems to be happening more and more uh, in those environments, unfortunately.
0: Well, I guess to kind of put a bow on that thought, that's disturbing that it's sort of continuing to increase. It seemed like something that sort of happened in the past and now is kind of boomeranging, boomeranging back. I think one of the things that you said in your when we were talking a little bit about, you know, the six primary duties of supervision um, and this idea of a healthy risk perception. One of the things that you said I thought was really fascinating, if you start thinking about the youth sport development cycle and this idea that, you know, maybe we're cocooning these kids so they don't really understand what, you know, what risk is. You know, I I went to a park that had a wooden slide that hadn't been uh, uh, waxed appropriately by the time you got there. And you went down, and let me tell you, uh, you were going to be dealing with some severe splinter removal. So you kind of figure that stuff out. What's your, what's your thoughts on that sort of a, as a safety guru in that regard and a risk mitigation guru? Like what's your thoughts on the impact of sort of this, this engineering the, the risk out in terms of how it could potentially apply to, to young athletes and, and how parents perceive what's going on with their young athletes in sport?
2: Yeah, obviously, uh, we've done a lot in the way of risk over several decades. Uh, we have improved measures that we mitigate and eliminate what we consider to be known and foreseeable hazards. But at the end of the day, I, you know, yes, it has prevented deaths and/or uh, injury as a result of those measures. But uh, because of a lack of exposure to risk, we we seem to just be kicking the can down uh, the street, and, and unfortunately. If you don't understand risk, if you don't frame it and relate it to your life in some meaningful way and and do an analysis, if you would, of the potential pitfalls associated with your actions or the actions of others or even the inactions, you're subjecting yourself to to greater threats uh, and increasing the probability. And and it boils down to if, if I continue to expose myself to a known and foreseeable hazard, and maybe I don't even know it's a hazard. Obviously, as the continued exposure occurs, you know, the probability of an incident is going to rise. And we have to understand based on a matrix of what is the likelihood of it occurring? And then what is the impact when it does? And one thing that, that bothers me to no avail is I see athletes continuously riding scooters and things of that nature without helmets. And yet I could propose statistics on the number of deaths and or people maimed as a result of riding scooters. Uh, either right or wrongly, in these environments, without proper protection, because it might look bad, uh, you, you know, it's it's not worth the risk. And and I, I I subscribe to this you know concept repeatedly in my classroom of if we know, then you have a responsibility to comply. Uh, and unfortunately, people it just falls on deaf ears, and and people avoid, you know succumbing, I guess, uh, you know, to the PPE that might be required in, in some capacity, uh, to prevent these kinds of tragic losses. So framing risk is interesting because it's, it's a multitude of areas. It can anything from physical risk, which is obviously risk that might be inherent to the environments where we practice, we play. Uh, but it also could be risks that aren't inherent to it. And we can talk about that in a little bit, but there's also interpersonal risk, which can be experiences between fans, altercations with teammates, uh, opposing teams domestic violence and then you get into personal property risk where it could be household considerations uh, maybe people or vendors that are working in your environment's contractors and then financial risk which you know risk from investments business endeavors mental emotional risk can come into play the stress of being an athlete you could go on and on so understanding how to pocket that risk is key so that you can address it in a meaningful way, but it also requires someone being able to recognize and assist in it. Because if you don't have a healthy risk perception, or you're not, and the problem with risk perception is that until you've experienced it firsthand, you can tell someone like I was saying about the scooter and the helmet till they're blue in the face. Wear it, but if you don't and haven't seen someone's brain splattered on the ground as a result of it, or are going to a funeral because of it, you might not appreciate it. And until that happens, unfortunately. Uh, people continue to tempt fate the way I see it, and it's just unfortunate because it is so avoidable.
1: Well, and following up with that, for those individuals on uh, who are listening in the athlete development space, you know, their role is working with the athletes, providing them resources, information, being that confidant. Um, hopefully, they have that established relationship and trust, but what can they do to encourage these individuals to not take those risks, those risky behaviors? Um, you know, besides like showing a graphic picture of someone whose, whose brains have been splattered, what can they do to help prevent those risky situations?
2: Yeah. So, you know, when professionals are working with athletes and athlete development capacities, and you're trying to alter the roles to what I believe is like unforeseen circumstances, you know, that's difficult. uh, Because as I stated earlier, uh, you really need to have someone that has a healthy risk perception that can even intervene uh, which goes back to those six primary roles of, of uh, supervision. It's who was qualified and competent enough to actually assist with that practice to intervene and or understand where someone's risk perception falls short. Uh, you can tell stories. I know that we, we uh, have become good at that. At least that's my perspective uh, in, in that regard. Uh, but, you know, unless, like I said, people have experienced it firsthand, it will often fall on deaf ears. Uh, so stories will only go so far. I do believe bringing in qualified people who have experienced firsthand some elements that might be applicable to an athlete in these roles or environments can go a long way with building a healthier risk perception. Uh, but uh, I don't know. I, I think because risks in the perception shift over time based on experiencing, you know, we can only do so much with informing and warning people. Uh, and, and like I said, unless you're using graphic materials, oftentimes that content can, is dull, uh, unin, uh, uninspirational, and or doesn't land with a person. Uh, so you might, when you're faced with adversity, not recognize that you are exposed to a hazard in the first place until it's too late. Uh, but that's where the greatest lesson is learned, unfortunately. I think generally speaking is is going back to what I was saying earlier is building firewalls that just provide prevention. Uh, and that goes to the use of the standards and just intervening measures to mitigate and eliminate those hazards in the first place because the risk, I mean, you think about this, it's embedded in every element of our life. We make decisions with respect to risk every day. Uh, we ride in cars, we use scooters, we walk, we, you know, chew gum, I, You can from choking to getting in a wreck, you name it uh results in some sort of harm but we choose uh to accept those risk uh that are either familiar or not to us and and, and sometimes it's just the roll of the dice is the way people see it but that to me is a thrown way of looking at it uh there are meaningful ways to to impart wisdom on individuals through you know strong language and or intervening uh aspects so that they can develop a risk perception but Sometimes we don't want to face these kind of uh, discussions. And I know when negative circumstances evolve, uh, a lot of us shy away uh, and do our best to to distance ourselves as soon as possible from them because uh, they hurt. Uh, And I think that's another element from a healthy mental perspective is seeking assistance after the fact to rationalize what happened. And the reality is it can happen to you. And we got to stop believing that, you know, just because it wasn't you that day, it won't be you tomorrow kind of concept. I think what's
0: interesting, too, is that, you know, I think in a lot of ways, the role of the athlete development specialist in our world is to kind of act as the individual that in many instances helps inform the athlete about some of these risks. So like your financial risk, your peer risk, you know, obviously our our folks aren't necessarily on the medical side, but, you know, they usually have enough knowledge to be dangerous. You know, think about this from a nutritional perspective, sleep perspective, whatever the case may be. So I think one of the, you know, as you're saying, as you're kind of walking through that and saying it's really challenging to get these messages across, what are the best practices? uh, And I know in your research, you talk about signage in in events, but what are the best practices to communicate to a group about you need to think about this? Yeah, this is how you need to do it. And and they may or may not listen, but what are the best practices to have the maximum level of impact when you're dealing with a, a population?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I, I know you mentioned signage and I do believe that's important because it reinforces uh, behavioral spec- expectations in certain environments. Uh, but those expectations should be built on internal policies, procedures, and standards. And as I said earlier, you know, using something like the three E's concept where if you can't engineer the hazard out, we need to educate with respect to that hazard. And if you can't educate or engineer it out, you need to enforce uh, certain policies. But you know, and I, I do believe it is all should be within positive examples or framework. Uh, so, predictable hate behavior, if you will, as it relates to safety, uh, is never achievable. And I, I think we kind of touched on that. Like I said, you can provide a safer environment, but you're never going to achieve absolute safety. Uh, so, safer environments can be achieved with a combination of elements, which include the proper supervision piece, uh, having appropriate instructions. Uh, but your competent supervisors, coaches all need to be able to spot risk and intervene in order to facilitate continuing the activities that they create safely or as safe as possible. So that requires that constant supervision in, in proximity to whatever the experiences might be and recognition, whether you see behavioral shifts even in, in your athletes and saying, Hey, let's talk. Let's go get a coffee. Let's walk. Let's do something so we can build these relationships so people recognize, uh, that there's an open door policy for having these kind of conversations and they've got my back because they got my back on the field. They got my back off the field kind of thing. So the, the purpose of intervention, if you will, is to avoid serious matters arising. And I think that is the best method here. Uh, you know, so we do have examples of known risk and, and I, I could give you all of those in some sort of list that might be 1,000 pages long, right? Uh, But That sounds like it might be depressing to go through that. Extremely, (laughs) right? But And that's the thing is that we don't want to hear it because it it is depressing. Risk management is boring to most. Safety and incidents or accident discussions are depressing uh, for most and or we avoid them at all costs. So You know, how do you make it a positive interaction? Well, because you are qualified enough to me uh, as a supervisor to intervene, to, to like I said, facilitate it, continuing safely. So they never have to be exposed to it, which continues that, you know, lessening, if you will, a reduction in a person's healthy risk perception. But at the same time, you have an obligation as a supervisor providing these activities and experience a duty, if you will, that's heightened because these people are in your care. So, you know, providing proper proper warning messages of verbally addressing uh, concepts and providing information that's relevant to the task are are key uh, to success. I know that you get back to the signage piece, those signage elements should just reinforce what it is that's already been discussed. And, you know, signage, if you do have it, should be bold, it should be simple, it should use pictograms. Uh, You know, you need to know what those hazards are in the environments that might be of concern to your athletes and both on and off-field activities too so when you craft signage maybe your signage is not just simply about equipment requirements but financial decisions or behavioral changes you know the see something say something uh mindset so you know you're we're watching everyone's back if you will it's a family i don't if you don't have strong relationships in these environments uh most of these efforts are just going to fall flat uh unfortunately so uh and if you do have signage to reinforce these cues in the environments uh once complacency sets in with them people ignore it so you got to change it up you got to move things otherwise that noise just you know that's i've of i've heard that before that basically after
0: a period of time not sure how long it is it basically just becomes part of the uh environment so yeah that's a strategy you got to move that around you got to keep it fresh yeah you gotta it keep people
2: guessing uh it, as soon as something becomes routine, uh, it's just you can't I think of all of what we encounter on a daily basis in regard to signage or just lessons learned, content that's uh, imparted on us, you name it instructions. you know after all, just our eyes roll back in the back of our head, and we just can't comprehend uh, you know we're only human after all, we're not machines and we cannot we're not limitless. Uh, in our ability to consume data, process that data, and respond to that data. So we got to be cautious in how much we impart on them uh, because it can get them into trouble. Absolutely. Just
1: a real-life example, I was at a sporting event last night, and I remember probably because I was thinking that we were having this conversation today, but we walk into the first set of doors, and it's all these people walking in, and the people inside the door said, oh, you can go all the way down at the end. And I'm thinking, why aren't there people outside the doors with the doors open so people understand that thousands and thousands of people don't have to go into one set of double doors? Ten sets of double doors allow people to go in. So then you go through that first um, kind of wave, and then you follow the path around, and then you get to the point where you scan your tickets. And, you know, technology now, everything's on your phone. There's no paper tickets. You tap your phone. You barcode your phone. But even when you went through the, maybe there was about seven different points of entry, like in a line, so seven different um, entrances, there was no stanchions to, to create actual lines. And I'm thinking this is a little bit of a cluster. And, you know, there were no fights and it was very civilized, but I'm just thinking this would expedite the process and cause less issues if you could actually see Oh, this is where one line, this is where another line is. And then all those seven lines funnel through two double doors again, and then you're going up escalators. And I actually was thinking, well, where are we supposed to go? I know where my tickets are, but when am am I going to know what section? And I thought it was bizarre that you don't find out where your level is until you're at your level. Like there isn't something that says at the bottom or at the back of your ticket, here's your seat. I mean, there's the technology. I knew what section I was, I knew what seat I was, but I didn't know where in relation to entering and where I would get off.
2: Yeah. You know, if you don't provide clear indicators to people that are either participants, invitees, you name it, in the environments in which we create for the purpose of entertainment or sport, people will devolve into just what they believe the environment is intended to be. And they'll create their own norms and establish their own dominance, if you will, in the environments, uh, which can cause conflict with respect to the expectations that should have been developed, uh, with respect to the norms that should have been followed with how someone uses an environment. So we, in my opinion, in most of our venues these days are falling flat with respect to the indicators that we should be pro- providing to our guests. Uh, and, and it's unfortunate because these are opportunities from parking all the way to coming up to a facility, to entering the facility, to, you know, various elements within the facility to where you sit in a facility. So use those cues, to provide exacting insight with respect to what your intent for how it should be used are so people can follow it in an appropriate manner. The concern that you kind of bring up and, and might not recognize is that if you are provided a set of specific doors, the double doors as you described, to enter a facility and everyone is kind of using that specific interest to gain entry to the facility, in the event that there's some sort of uh, catastrophe, an active shooter, or a fire, or you name it, uh, usually people, unless there's specific indicators on use for the building, will follow the same pathway they entered out. So you could have crowd stacking and trampling and all those concerns in the location that they use to gain entry, because that is the belief is this is where I'm supposed to exit, if you would. And we see this throughout time. Uh, other examples, I think there was a fire in Rhode Island, uh, going back sometime. Uh, it was a concert and everyone used the only entrance they were aware of. Hundred people died that day as a result of it. So we need to be cognizant of how we craft the language to tell people where to go. And I know having things in electronic format, uh, format on our phones to gain entries is, is convenient, but maybe not the safest measure, especially if we've gotten rid of cues outside of the buildings to tell people how to use them. Uh, so signage is key. One of my biggest concerns is that when we craft signage, we theme it because we're trying to, you know, bury it is the way I see it. Uh, It should be exacting and there's standards for it. There's standards for all of what we do, if you would. Uh, And ANSI is an example under the Z535 series for environmental signage. And it has exacting language and color codes and distance for seeing those codes to teach you know, those that are crafting this, how to build a better sign. So that it is actually recognized because it's tested uh, to determine people's recognition of what is being presented. Otherwise, even if you post the sign, uh, the odds of someone seeing it and understanding what it means are low, uh, unless you, you've you met some sort of uh, standard. There's a lot of Muppets out there they are gonna do whatever they wanna do anyway, right? So. This is true too, <laughs> yeah. But Someone's easier to said, pull yeah. them in line, if you will, if you've <laughs> yeah. got, uh, you know, standards to enforce.
0: And then there's kind of two things here that are kind of banging through my head is I think obviously you talk about your research, the importance of data and metrics and whatnot. And that's a big belief in a lot of the folks that work in our industry. Yeah, um, What's your take on what's the best approach in terms of um, in order to identify risks and, and potentially safety issues and, and, you know, looking at it from an athlete, professional athlete perspective and this athlete development specialist, what data should they be looking to grab in order to kind of maybe look for those risks or assess those risks that are out there. And I know you've talked about how to evaluate vendors and, and, and things of that nature. So I'm just curious, like, how would you approach that with your background, you know, looking at protecting uh, people by collecting data and using metrics and things of that nature?
2: Yeah. So you got a couple things to unpack there. And I, I like it because you're talking about data collection, then you're talking about vetting vendors. And then Yeah, possibly, I mash those up, man. Sorry, so no, feel free to unpack as you see fit. Yeah, and then, and then obviously we've got standards that we need to account for. So in risk management, uh, especially during, and, and this is kind of a long winding road to get to a point, if you follow. So especially during our incident investigation practices, uh, the way I see it, and the way risk managers will look at it, is that every relevant data point, everything that you can fathom, should be collected until it's otherwise ruled out. Is not playing a factor in an outcome. So we collect probably way too much, and then we have to look from a root cause perspective as what's actually necessary in order to evaluate why this happened in the first place so that moving forward, we can impart that wisdom on others uh, so that we can prevent this from happening again. So, my perspective on this, and, and this is just as simple as it can be document, document document everything and then do it some more right So in risk management, if it's not documented, I, I think the key thing is that it wasn't done uh, is the way we see it. And from a legal perspective because oftentimes you know when we're dealing in risk there's going to be a legal component. Uh, if it's not done it can be detrimental, especially in the eyes of the court because you can't produce anything. So you know as it relates to athletes though, data is power. Uh, it is information and much like risk management, the more we know, the better we can predict outcomes and address those known and foreseeable considerations. So I think there's a lot of parallels there, because once we've identified them, we can intervene. So as my risk perception shift and/ or my understanding of, of the nature of risk, with r- relationship to the data, uh, I can go, whoo, this is showing me a pattern. Uh, let me intervene here. So when you're capturing uh, the more detail, the better, especially from an athlete perspective, in my opinion at this point, uh, in risk management, it, there's this primary method of modeling risk, uh, and it's called near-miss data. And unfortunately, we don't, as an industry, do a real good job of near misses. So I-, I give you an example. Like, imagine you have a 20-year-old who slips and falls on a walkway. They get up, they walk off. Uh, but if it was observed and, and it was memorialized in some meaningful way, and you notice that it was happening again and again, you you see that pattern. And I think that's the key here. So. You have that opportunity to take corrective action and avoid that area uh, and or fix whatever concerns might exist there, but imagine you flip the script there and you don't, you don't collect the data. you have an eighty year old that encounters the same slip area, falls, breaks a hip, hospitalize. Uh, you know you have some explaining to do, you know what I mean? It's like, well, if we were observing details, we would have seen this coming, and we would have been able to intervene and stop it so when this data is collected especially you know from a health perspective or whatever that might apply in an athlete's world you got to put it also at the end of the day in the right person's hand so that they can interpret what they're seeing so that they can share with those that might be on the front lines of hey we need to watch out for this or look for this we're seeing some shifts here so i think in all in all the key there is recognition uh, of those patterns so, and, and, and that can boil down to simple as just behavioral changes and people, uh, you know, making certain assumptions that are wrong or right uh, in environments. But,
0: and, and not to interrupt you, because I think yeah. one of the things that you're saying is pretty interesting there is you start looking at the near miss. And I'm thinking, Stephanie, feel free to chime in here. But you start looking at an athlete that maybe, you know, they, they almost lost their money to a bad financial investment. They almost got taken by somebody that was doing some shenanigans on, you know, giving them a ridiculous insurance policy. You hear those stories, at least I've heard them, I'm sure, Stephanie, you have as well, but they aren't really typically documented and they aren't analyzed to identify, okay, where did this guy almost sneak in? Where did it go wrong? You, only, you usually only, I guess the equivalence would be, you know, using, uh, you know, the a flight. Usually we're only dealing with the car crash or the plane crash and we're looking at the wreckage at that point we really aren't looking at the near misses. So I think that's a really interesting point to to kind of step back and rethink how we examine how our athletes are integrating with the wider world and where things maybe have come close to going off the rails and then analyzing that for, like I said, the, the near miss concept, which I find particularly fascinating.
2: Yeah. And I, and I think it goes back to framing risk and understanding the varying components of risk. And cause I, You know, financial risk is a serious problem uh, when it comes to athletes. And, you know, we blindly trust people of wealth. And as a result, people are magnets to them. And, you know, as a result, we need to ensure once we've achieved success via wealth and financial concerns, that we properly start to vet those that are interested in being our friend or providing services to us in some capacity. So I recommend that any... Athlete that is being approached and from a financial perspective, have those that are willing to provide their services succumb to some sort of vetting process? Do due diligence with them because these near misses, which probably should be documented and researched with respect to financial concerns, uh, are plaguing uh, you know athletes. So there are ways though to overcome it, even without knowing what those near misses were. Uh, And it boils down to prove what you say you can do and back it up contractually and use attorneys to craft those documents. Uh, In my opinion, and this is never settled for the first options provided, you got to listen and learn from multiple people, get reference, proceed with caution, trust, but verify, if you will, if we're going to use short snippets. Uh, Beyond that, I mean, there are experts in every field. uh, And if you're going to consider those experts, uh, and approach them yourselves, vet them too. Uh, and that can be with respect to insurance. Uh, what kind of life insurance? Who's going to get power of attorney if I'm injured? What kind of living will do I need? Uh, you know, Based on your profile, however high profile, what about security factors? Let's see, You know, criminal acts, home safety, protection of your family. Uh, who's providing that? I mean, if you're having vendors just in your home or working on your cars or just interacting with you in public, what kind of non-disclosure agreements are you having them enter into because they might see things that you don't want the public uh, knowing about so uh, i could go on and on i mean when it comes to financial considerations you know vetting anyone that's dealing with your money and having someone else watching that person that is dealing with your money is going to be key uh it, it even goes to doctors and physicians uh, it, both inside and outside of your organizations Constantly evaluating your physical and mental health, and making sure they're competent in that. There's no, you know, uh, skeletons in those closets, if you would. So, uh, a lot to consider. But I think these are worthy investments uh, to to be had. And I know that once you know athletes start getting their first paychecks, it can be overwhelming in the senses, and 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 it can be a difficult decision to do uh, these kinds of uh, vetting uh, because it, it's uh, it's not fun. No, and you have to ask the hard questions,
0: and you're probably going to make somebody else uncomfortable. And, and, and you have to kind of go through that process for sure.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think in, in the long run, there, uh, you need to ask yourself a question Am I willing to make some people uncomfortable in my 20s and still have my money in my 60s? You know what I mean? So that's good. 100%. Yeah.
1: No, and I think that just that segment you just shared is just very relevant and resonates will resonate with our audience because it's applicable to all aspects of the athlete's life that they're working with. You know, it's not just risk management at a a stadium, but financial planning and um, home security and all of those things. So I think that that was great.
2: Yeah, no, I I think it's very important. and there are great resources out there. It's not hard to find qualified and competent people. I mean, we have historical data on most that have been very successful. It's just approaching those individuals uh, and finding out firsthand what those experiences were like and or how they can be helped. Uh, but my advice is always have an attorney uh, that is, you know, a confidant that, that can really go toe to toe with anyone uh, in these spaces uh, that's got your back more. Um, first and foremost, yeah. All the lovely attorneys, human
0: black clouds—they're great, but you—you you need them. <laughs> but I got to ask you one, one last question. I think this has been particularly fascinating, and I think we could honestly—we—we we were joking out—we we're weren't going to go for three hours, but I think this conversation very easily could stretch to that. But I think the way I want to wrap it up is I want to ask you. Obviously, in, in your line of work, through your research, through the work that you've done, working with lawyers and being involved in the courts, what is the one, I guess, um, experience or story that you've come across? that you think might be the most illuminating for our audience to understand the importance of being on top of of understanding risk management, understanding the importance of safety. I'm just curious what you've seen and, and what's maybe stuck with you and what lessons can we learn from that from you?
2: Yeah, I mean, the number of incidents that have resulted from inappropriate understanding of people's roles or application of standards and compliance with existing and available standards. I could go on for days. Uh You know, there is one though that I really kind of, that hits home and or I have developed as a case study in my classes and it had to do with a, a young, young boy who was a high school uh, student athlete and he was playing basketball. And I think this kind of drives all the concepts home and maybe even as a quick segue into some of the regulations and standards that do exist is, you know, he was playing basketball at a sanctioned uh, school event. And during that game, The student athlete, while attempting a layup, tripped near the baseline uh, or toward the out-of-bounds portion of the court. He was propelled forward and he made contact with a padded wall, which seemed benign enough right at the end of the day. But upon impact with that surface, uh, he had suffered a spinal cord injury and it resulted in him becoming a quadriplegic. So the out-of-bounds line uh, after the incident occurred was determined to be only several feet away from what was a structural wall. And yes, it was padded, but it wasn't appropriately padded. Uh, and we should appreciate that. Obviously, there's inherent risk associated with sport. This is not one of them. Uh, running into a wall while you're playing basketball uh, is is just not expected. So I think this plays perfectly into our earlier discussion about multi-causation. And if you had taken responsibility, understanding the environment and/or the game, and then evaluating it in its context, you would easily recognize that the court should have been further away from the wall. And if you couldn't make that happen, then adequate padding should have been provided. Impact attenuation is an exacting science. It isn't about going to Amazon and saying, what's the cheapest gym mat I can tack to the wall? You know what <laughs> right. I mean? So right. and we do that and, that and that's a serious problem. And this could have been prevented because there are standards on impact attenuation material of playing surfaces and all the other protective sports surfaces and systems that exist in all athletics. And then beyond that, you know, there was another component that kind of factored into it, and it was possibly the slipperiness of the court. And that could have been dressed with athletic performance properties of indoor sport floor systems. And these are both ASTM standards. And the concern I had is if you had been able to identify one of these, this would have been prevented. And this individual would still be walking and playing sports. and and my concern is that as a industry, we don't know enough or we aren't doing enough homework because these standards are very intimidating, but they're there. And and I think, you know, understanding that risk management is a process uh, and we learn from all sorts of individuals, our insurance underwriters, attorneys, professors, interested parties, you name it. But all in all, if I did a simple Google search and say, All right. Standards for sport, right? Our sport equipment. You come up with the ASTM standards in his example, and they have standards for sport equipment and facilities, and they are instrumental to like evaluating, testing, you know, equipment facilities, protective gear, all of it. Concepts like artificial turf systems, athletic footwear, helmets, they're there. We just got to download them and read them, instruct on them, and then comply with them. And I I subscribe that even if I'm in a role as a supervisor, it is my duty and obligation to know them and use them. But I also believe we should be sharing this with our athletes so that they can act as a reinforcing agent of going, hey, (laughs) we're not complying with this today. And I mean, it can even simple as does the shoe that was provided for you to wear, is it appropriate for the surface, your foot size and the role you play on the field? And, and I don't think we ask those questions enough and or impart that kind of wisdom on our athletes. So it's frustrating to me.
0: Well, I, I appreciate you sharing that story. And again, I thank you for taking a ton of time today to talk to us. And I think the different perspective that you're able to bring to the table here, I think hopefully gives uh, our members uh, some food for thought and maybe a different perspective in terms of how to look at some of the challenges their athletes may face, both uh, in the wider world and in the working space, uh, at their, at their various, uh, practice facilities and whatnot. Um, so with that, um, thank you so much. Thank you. Brian Avery from the university of Florida. You can check him out at briandavery.com. Thanks again for making the time to come,
2: uh, and speak with us today. Yeah. And it was a real pleasure, Duncan and Stephanie. I appreciate it. Thank you.